Here's a question. How does an ordinary person land their dream job in the sports industry immediately after graduating? Welcome to the Sports Grad Podcast, your bite-sized guide to enter the sports industry. I'm Ruben Williams. And I'm Ryan Walker. In 2017, we said goodbye to exams and hello to full-time work. This is a behind-the-scenes reveal of exactly how the best sports industry professionals in the world created careers that most only dream of. We believe every dream job in sport is worth chasing, and that's why we want to give you the tools to make it a reality. For a proven process to getting jobs in sport, download our free ebook. How to Get Jobs in Sport, The Sports Grad Method. You can get this for free at www.sportsgrad.com.au. Hello and welcome to The Sports Grad Podcast. My name is Ryan Walker and with me, as always, is the companionless Ruben Williams. How are you today, mate? I'm good, mate. It's, uh, it's good to have you back. Companionless is correct. I missed you this week. Can you please oh. explain a bit about why? Listeners are going to find out very shortly that I had to do this episode all on my own. Where were you? Yes, I'm, I think it is the first time we've done a lonesome episode, which was absolutely flattening. Uh, however, I was actually at a two-day offsite with Cricket Australia. Now, it usually happens around this time. You usually go away and, and review the season that was, look at the season ahead. But it was actually really good. We did a lot of work around how do you operate at your best? So, how how can I bring the best version of myself to work each day and, and do what I need to do, which is actually really awesome. And I kind of feel a little bit, you know, refreshed and I've reset for another season, which is actually really good. But no, I was very flat to leave you on your own. But after hearing what you've produced, it, it is actually one of the great episodes. So, I'm beginning to get a little bit worried that maybe I should just, leave you to, to do this every week because the listeners out there might think this is it. So, I'm a little bit concerned and I can't wait to get back on the airways with you to right well, this wrong. Well, I can't wait to have you back as well. And <laughs> I think uh, it is it is a great episode, but I think we owe most of that to, to Jay from the NBA who is just a fantastic person and incredibly mm. intelligent guy and made for a, a terrific conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And as you just mentioned, Jay Lee, who's uh, the Vice President of Product Experience at the NBA and has held various roles across the industry. You can look at, you know, Head of Product at Nike, um, looked after the Nike Run Club, who if, if you haven't seen that before, look it up. It's huge. Um, he's also held roles at ESPN where he worked on the app for the World Cup, the FIFA World Cup, might I add. He's also worked on the redesign of the NFL website if you don't mind. So, so some massive projects and massive roles that he's held um, and now currently at, at the NBA. So, it doesn't get much bigger than the NBA, I must say. So, grab a pen for those listening and enjoy this chat with Ruben and Jay Lee. Jay Lee, welcome to the Sports Grad Podcast. Thanks for having me. Jay, firstly... You are living the dream at one of the top organizations in the world. Everybody dreams of, you know, working at the NBA. What's it like actually being a part of the organization? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I think on, on a personal level for me, I, I can't even really say it's a dream job uh, because growing up as a kid, I, I really didn't yet understand anything about business, let alone the business of basketball, right? I was just a kid. A uh, diehard fan. I grew up uh, in the Canary Islands in Spain, and so I got grainy replays and highlight shows of 
Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic, and just plastered posters all over my wall. Um, you know, I played a lot of basketball, but I had really no illusions of ever competing seriously. So um, to kind of be here now contributing day in and day out to the organization that that captivated me as a kid, uh, it's really remarkable. I didn't really even think that it was possible, um, but I consider myself obviously incredibly lucky. Some of the uh, the best parts of working in sport are, you know, the experiences that you can't buy or the perks that come along with the job. What, what are some of those at the NBA? Yeah, I mean, the perks that, that we all get to enjoy uh, at the league are, are obviously uh, we get a chance to go to games and, and see them from a different side. Uh, we get to host different partners at, at events, be it All-Star or uh, the finals or other events like that. Um, and then just working around the league offices, we get to run into uh, former players and and coaches and and other you know people that you've read about uh, that are working for the league. But um, I think really what stands out to me working there, uh, first of all, is just the the everyday people who work in the league offices, right? I, I work with some of the most talented, intelligent, prepared, and and really hardworking individuals. Um, and that I've ever worked with before. And, and everybody really has what I, what I think of as just a, a real resiliency and kind of clarity of purpose. Um, and that really allows us to operate as a team and, and make decisions thoughtfully, but also decisively, uh, especially when we're faced with, with unexpected circumstances. So um, it's a perk and a privilege just to be around that every day. And I think there's probably no better example of this uh, than than how the league figured out how to successfully restart the season in the midst of a pandemic last year, um, what our events team and our our basketball operations teams did, and our broadcast operations teams all were able to do to stand up the bubble in Orlando and the 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 WNBA wobble in Florida and bring back live sports, um, and doing it in a way that prioritized health and safety was really something truly remarkable. So that's that's one thing that I really uh, really stands out to me about working at the NBA. the The second thing about the NBA is that we're always pushing forward, right, and trying to find ways of doing things better. Right? There's there's no dwelling on sort of negative circumstances beyond our control. I think a lot of your listeners are are either athletes or, or follow sports really closely, so they'll get the the metaphors and the analogies, but. You know, in basketball, something happens. You, you know, negatively, you ask yourself, "All right, well, what's the next play?" Right? So what? Now what? Uh, what are we going to do? So even with the the restart in Orlando, we're we're always trying to push innovation, right? So we can't have fans in the in the bubble. Well, what if we brought in virtual fans to the arena? Um, not all teams are going to be able to compete. Well, what if we created a play-in tournament with rules that allowed there to be a competition for the last spot in the playoffs? So even in the midst of that. Uh, the goal was never really just to get the games back on, but how do we continue to innovate while doing so? Um, and while this isn't really a perk, I think probably the last thing that I'll say uh, that I really enjoy about being at the NBA is that in addition to to all the innovation and the hard work, there's there's a clear and important role that our league plays in society, right? Especially when it comes to issues of social justice. And we're doing really meaningful work in that arena, uh, to both raise awareness and, and educate ourselves and others on social justice issues and, and advocate for meaningful reform. Um, it, you know, it spans from the big ideas like the National Basketball Social Justice Coalition that we formed um, in partnership with the NBA Players Association 
uh, or the NBA foundation that was formed in partnership with all the owners of all 30 teams, the governors of all 30 teams, um, with a mission of sort of furthering economic empowerment in the black community. And it spans all the way down to everyday community conversations that we have within the league offices themselves, right? So we create space for dialogue and, and we dedicate real resources and time to educate ourselves and drive meaningful change. And, you know, most recently, one example that stands out to me is we had a community conversation organized by our social justice task force uh, in partnership with our Asian professional exchange group about the recent rise in Asian American hate crimes. And we had as guests in that conversation, Joe Sai, the governor of the Brooklyn Nets, uh, who's doing a lot for the community on that front, but also just in the community of Brooklyn to restart businesses, you know, as we come out of the pandemic, hopefully here. And we also had a woman by the name of Amanda Wen, who's the founder of this organization called Rise, which is um, the most successful kind of legislative reform movement in the U.S. They've passed over 30 laws that have impacted over 85 million people on a whole range of social justice issues. And so getting time in our workday to hear from someone like her and to have her share her experiences and then for us to have the ability to talk about that and think about how we might leverage that in our own work and in our own communities. Um, I wouldn't really call that a perk, but it is a, a really incredible and fulfilling aspect of the job. That is sensational. And I think particularly learning about how the NBA during the Michael Jordan era became one of the most influential organizations in the entire world to now be a part of the influence that it's having must be an incredible thing. But let's talk about your current job because it does impact millions, if not billions, we might say billions for the purpose of this podcast, uh, of people across the world. Can you explain what you do at the NBA? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I lead a team responsible for the product experience for the NBA's direct-to-consumer group. And so when we say product experiences, uh, we don't mean the game on the court itself, but it's NBA.com, uh, the NBA app, and our subscription offering for live games, which is called League Pass, which is available in over 200 uh, global markets and territories, including Australia, which is a, a, an important market for us. So hopefully many of your listeners there are, are subscribers to League Pass. Um, and so the product team, our mission is is quite simple. We We want to create this global community for fans to engage with all aspects of the game, you know, deepen their fandom, learn more about the game, and really pass that love on to their friends and also to the next generation of fans. And we want to do that through these digital touch points that we have. So we're constantly coming in every day and thinking about the future of our what our digital and mobile experiences could be and really figuring out what the technology investments need to be uh, or that we need to make in order to deliver that future. So you know, we come in thinking about fan needs, talking to partners about new and exciting ways to kind of build technology into the game, build innovation into the, the way we deliver the game. And then we just spend most of our hours working hand in hand with design and engineering teams to actually then build and test those concepts that we think will deliver value to fans. You mentioned that previously that one of the things you guys had to adapt to was having no fans in stadiums and the way that you would still engage fans around the world. Was that uh, an exciting prospect for you, given your whole role is around technology and innovation? Absolutely. Um, even before the pandemic, we were thinking a lot about the fact that you know 99% of our fans will never attend an NBA game, 
right? And what we hear from fans around the world constantly is they want to experience the game as if they were there. They want to feel closer to the action. And we do a lot of user testing and design testing with people in Australia, fans in the Philippines, fans in Barcelona, wherever it may be, even fans in the U.S. who, quite frankly, don't go to games regularly. And so that provided a real opportunity for us to just try some things about how we could connect fans uh, into the experience a lot closer. So the virtual fans experience was great, but we also had a lot of different things that we were trying out. Uh, we had the ability for fans to tap their phone to cheer on their teams. Um, we also had real virtual chat going on as well. And we did some things around the actual uh, delivery of the game broadcast itself that we couldn't have really done before, but we have always wanted to experiment with. So for example, because we didn't actually have fans in uh, in the bubble, that gave us the ability to put a camera right around where courtside is and try what we called the sideline cam. So uh, again, thinking about that insight that we know fans want to be closer to the action as if they were there, we thought, well, what if we had a, you know, a sideline cam that could move along and essentially give you the view of the court as if you had every single courtside seat. Um, and what if we stripped out the broadcast and just had the natural sound in the arena so you could hear sneaker squeaks and you could hear the players and refs talking? Um, what would that feel like? Would that bring you closer to the action as a fan? And so we learned a lot about what worked and some things that didn't work about that experience. And we've continued to experiment with that even as teams have returned to their home arenas this year. You talk about testing and, and validating ideas and, and products. What's the process of uh, building a new digital product? We do a lot of LinkedIn stalking and we found on your LinkedIn that in your experience, it says that you lead the product strategy and product design and product management of the MBA uh, digital portfolio. But what does that process actually look like? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the simplest way to say it is we're, we're just waking up every day trying to think about how we can improve our fans' lives. How can we can add value to our fans' lives, right? That's what product development is. Uh, I was recently listening to uh, Jason Kylar, who's the CEO of Warner Media. He was speaking at an event and he was asked to define innovation. And he said, look, it's simply about the relentless pursuit of finding better ways, right? And that's exactly what we're doing as product managers. And that's what our process is about is, is can we find a better way for fans to see that highlight that everyone's talking about on social? Can we find a better way uh, through the use of advanced stats to maybe help our fans settle debates? Like who's the greatest of all time, LeBron or MJ? Uh, what can the NBA app contribute in, in your, in that argument for you as a fan, right? Or who's the best rookie point guard this season, right? Is it, LaMelo Ball, who played for the Illawarra Hawks down there in Australia, or is it Tyrese Halliburton? Um, you know, can we find a better way to allow fans to watch the game in, in a landscape that's changing, right? Where traditional pay TV distribution services are giving way to more direct to consumer streaming services. And there's a lot of choice, uh, but also a lot of fragmentation. So how do we make it easy for fans to discover how they can watch? So, that's really what the overall process of, of product development is. And you kind of asked about what's the process of building a, a new digital product. Um, I would point people to the, the sort of tried and true lean product process that we follow, right? The simple steps to figure out if you have product market fit. Um, and product market fit really is 
quite simply when a product satisfies a strong market demand and does so enough that you can sustain profitability and growth for that product, right? That's what everyone is trying to achieve when they build a new product. And there are kind of these steps that you can run through in order to achieve product market fit. Um, and it all starts with the customer, right? You got to determine your target customer. You got to determine which segment of the population you're going after. Maybe it's a demographic segment, or maybe it's a, a segment of fans with certain attributes um, that you want to target. And and then you ask yourself, what problems can I solve for them, right? What are the unmet needs that they have? Um, and then how can I concept some solutions and define, come up with a value proposition for why something you create might actually solve that problem in a way that no one else has figured out before. Um, and then you can specify a, a few hypotheses about how you might actually prove or disprove that hypothesis on what the value of your service is. By the way, all of this can be done before you put a single line of code down, right? Before you put any engineering resources against this, you can concept all of this out and write all this out on paper just to see if you have uh, something that sticks, right? And then once you're past that stage, you go into you know MVP creation, right? Minimum viable product creation, where you're sort of specifying that minimum viable feature set and then building a prototype, or in some cases, even launching the first version of an app to test that hypothesis. And then, you know, learn from immediate feedback, whether or not your hypothesis was true, whether or not you're on your way to achieving product market fit. And then you just iterate from there. What are some of the metrics that you guys use to understand if the product is fit for market? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think it depends on the kind of service that you're launching, right? So if you're trying to move engagement for an existing market, so you want your your fans to, or engagement for an existing product, and you want your fans to spend more time, then you could look at things like the frequency of their visit, right? Um, the daily active users over the monthly active users, right? Which is just simply a ratio to tell you, are people using your product more frequently because you've created maybe a new content experience or a new way for them to engage with video um, that's leading to them, you know, leading to them coming back more often, or, and engaging and spending more time. So time spent is another metric. And then we always look at retention. And when you're, when you're trying to grow uh, a product, you are obviously putting a lot of energy and effort up front at the, in the top of the funnel, essentially to acquire new customers. So new user retention becomes a really important metric. And, and people who work in mobile gaming understand this really, really well. They, they look at what they call D1, D7, D15, day one, day seven metrics to see how much decay are they seeing in their user base from you know the product or in this case, the mobile game that they just launched. So for us, we don't look at D1 necessarily because we're, we're an MBA product and we, we occupy a unique space in the market there, but we do want to see of new users that we acquire, how many of them are sticking around. And for us, a lot of new users could be segments of fans that we may not have targeted before, right? Uh, in the U.S., for example, we're thinking a lot about how do we bring in new users in the, into the NBA experience who might be interested in sports betting, right? As that becomes more popular here in the NBA or fantasy players or millennials, right? Who are on social media platforms, uh, mostly. I don't want to group all millennials together, but you know, people who have other access points to our content other than downloading an NBA app what kind of proposition can we create for them? And then what retention can we see as a metric to see whether or not we're keeping all of those users in our in our product? 
You mentioned that you guys are constantly building products and features based on what users need. Are these ideas sparked by just watching trends or getting feedback? Do you have like a hotline somewhere where you can just submit feedback or are you listening to your friends at dinner parties? Like where do these ideas come from? Yeah, they they definitely come from, we definitely get a lot of feedback. <laughs> when we ask for feedback, right, we want fans to tell us what's working and what's not working so that we can make changes. And oftentimes fans will will highlight certain problems, as I mentioned earlier, problems that they want solved that we just may not have thought about because we don't live in their shoes every day or, or you know, we're, and certainly when it comes to our international fans, um, there's a lot of features that we've launched that we might not have prioritized had we not heard from our international fans about how important there is. So I'll give you an example there. Um, we pay a lot of attention to not spoiling the outcomes of games for our League Pass subscribers, especially those internationally who we know aren't able to always watch live, right? In the UK, for example, all of our games are going to be on at two or three o'clock in the morning, right? And so there are a lot of subscribers who want to wake up the next day and watch the experience as if it were live for them. So we've gone to great lengths to hide scores and hide any images so that they can watch that game on un- 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 uninterrupted um, and not feel like it's spoiled for them. I had a, a user reach out to me directly on LinkedIn actually recently and tell me um, that all of the things that we had done so far around Hyde's course was great, but we were still showing the length of the stream, right? The total length of the stream. And that was spoiling for, for him whether or not the game went into overtime. And based on that was giving him an indication of whether or not a certain team won or not, which is just, you just don't think about that detail, right? And so you have to have your ear to the ground listening for things like that. Um, but a lot of other innovation and these ideas do come from trends uh, in the technology space as well, right? We're, we're quick to experiment with anything, whether it's new developments in social media or, or if there's companies out there that are creating new ways of connecting with fans. We, we try to take advantage of those quickly to just to see what resonates. Um, you know, we recently hosted a room on Clubhouse and Clubhouse has been got, getting a lot of attention. Uh, we had a national broadcast or we did it during a national broadcast of the Lakers and Celtics game. And we had some hosts and some moderators and we talked about a whole bunch of different topics um, from the game itself to the rise of NFTs and Top Shot and we had a lot of impromptu guests kind of join the room and jump in. Everyone from Sue Bird, the Seattle Storm, you know, Rich Paul, even the Clubhouse founder came in at some point. Uh, we had over a thousand concurrent users. And the purpose of that was not to say that we're going to make all of these investments in being on Clubhouse or that we're going to build all this technology to mimic what Clubhouse does on our owned and operated platforms. All of those things may be true, but we just wanted to start by seeing what resonated. What, what did it feel like? What did the experience feel like? How many people could we get on it? So that's just an example of, of how we like to see what's happening and quickly try something on those platforms. Um, that's led to us having incredible presence on Snapchat and TikTok and Instagram and all the social media platforms that we're immediately cutting content for and always experimenting with to see what the new behaviors are like. How big is the the content team at the NBA? You, you mentioned you're cutting content all the time for for those different platforms, and from what we see, there's just like you know, there's so many games, there's so many highlights in basketball, there's a lot of different channels now. How big is the content room at the NBA? 
Well, I, I don't know if I could give you a number of people, but, um, and there's really two aspects of it. One is there's, we have all of our, our content folks who are in our Secaucus offices in New Jersey on the second floor, you know, loggers, uh, editors, everyone watching the actual games, cutting things in real time for different platforms, um, logging game data as well. Um, but we also have obviously a, a huge partnership with Warner Media and Turner Sports down in Atlanta, and they create a lot of content for us as well. Obviously, they have the, the studio show um, with TNT and Inside the NBA, and there's a lot of other content in NBA TV. And so that's a whole nother division of content um, that we partner very closely with and bring all of that together for our fans. Let's go back to the international markets that you mentioned. We might uh, indulge for a minute. Talk to us about uh, Australia and why that's such an, an important uh, market for the NBA. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to indulge the the Australian <laughs> listeners here, but I think there's some some interesting trends that are slightly different in that marketplace. First of all, I think when it comes to media consumption, just free to air is very popular in Australia, from what I understand, and, and sort of pay TV for that reason is is more traditionally lower penetrated, right? I think it's like around thirty percent of TV households. So, um, yeah, I had a colleague of mine who used to to be at Foxtel was telling me how there's generally there's a sentiment that people don't want to pay for things that fall outside of what they really want, right? Um, and that's becoming true for most uh, over the top subscribers in other markets as well, but. In the U.S., for example, there's a large segment of of viewers who are still coming out of the more traditional pay TV model where you're getting hundreds of cable channels, right? Um, And so what we've understood from the Australian fans is that there's if there's clear value in the offering, they're willing to pay. Uh, And so with League Pass, we have this nice intersection of the offering itself and that willingness that creates a really important uh, market for us, right? Australian fans who subscribe to League Pass can watch every game for the entire season, like all 1200 plus regular season games, every single game of the playoffs and the finals, right? Full access. uh, And you could do it all commercial free if you buy league pass premium. Uh, Not that I'm pitching that right now, but (laughs) um, I think it's a really great value for anyone who's an avid NBA fan. And that's one of the reasons why it's a, a top international market for us. The other thing, it's it's a great time zone. You guys are in a good time zone for watching games live, right? When our 7 p.m. Uh, and 8 p.m. games tip off tonight, it'll be right in the middle of your lunch hour, right? So, I mean, if I lived in Australia, I know what I would do every lunch hour, right? That would be my my event would just be watching basketball and eating at the same time. <laughs> totally. That's what happens. One of the, the best parts of working at Cricket Australia was that there were four, five, six TVs on, on every single floor. And so, when the NBA finals were on, you'd end up gathered around a TV with half the floor standing up watching. I remember watching the Toronto Raptors win the NBA finals and a few of the games went to overtime and we're all just standing around in our lunch break and before our lunch breaks and after our lunch breaks, just watching the NBA. And it wasn't really until I started working full-time and had exposure to it because it was right in front of me that I properly got into the NBA. So you're right, like the, the time zone is a, is a massive factor for us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that sounds like a lot of fun, by the way. It was. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah, and so I think you know, things like that align really nicely to to the value proposition of what League Pass is right now, which is like watching games live, right? And, and also being able to do so on any device. So while you guys were standing around, 
you know, watching at bars, there's other people who are at work who have to watch on their phone, right? Or watch on their desktop. So I, I, you know, we've done interviews with fans who were in small conference rooms and, and running through design tests with us while they're at work in Australia. So um, it's just interesting how we can serve that market across different platforms. Um, and I think the other thing is there's just a huge growing fandom. It's like an avid fan base, but also still growing in Australia. And I just think there's some really great stories, right, of recent players like RJ Hampton going over the the New Zealand breakers. I realize New Zealand is not Australia, but... We try to claim them. <laughs> and uh, LaMelo, obviously, with the, the Hawks last season. And uh, so I think the future of the professional league, the NBL there, is something worth keeping an eye on. And, and uh, obviously, there's also been a rich history of Australian players who've who've made a mark in the in the game itself in the NBA, right? From Bogut, Andrew Bogut to Matthew Delavadova, you know, Dante Exum, and I um, mean, of course, Ben Simmons, right? Mm. How do you uh, prioritize different projects or things to work on? Because I imagine you'd be getting so much information. You'd have people right at the top end of leadership saying, "Hey." Jay, can we change these different things? You'd have people in the commercial department saying, hey, our sponsor wants us to do this. And you'd have people from customer service saying, can you make this easier for our customers? How do you decide what is a priority? Yeah, this is the the main question for any product manager out there, right? Uh, If if anyone has had the perfect answer, I'd love to see it. But um, you know, I, it's a combination of art and science, right? And and maybe if I can indulge just in a in a sports analogy or in a basketball analogy for for a second, um, it, it's almost just like you you need to have you know when you're forming a basketball team, you got to start with the fundamentals, right? So you've you've got to have the right mix of skills and positions to increase your chances of winning, right? So and similarly, when you're building a, pri- a prioritized product roadmap you need to have a good sense of the fundamentals and the fundamentals are the things that are going to drive impact to the business, drive growth for your product and and drive value for your fans. Right? So just like having different positions and different skills, it's the right mix of those core features that throughout the course of the season, you know, you're going to have to uh, launch or enhance in order to, to drive the core business. If you don't have the fundamentals, you're going to get laughed off the court if you're a basketball team and your fans are going to leave you if you're a product out there, right? So it all starts from there. Um, and often the things that you hear from executives or others out there is about a problem that they're having or somebody else is having around that core value proposition that they're experiencing as fans. So that's the great thing is we get people who are fans wanting to see things for themselves, even if they're in executive positions they're also basketball fans so they tell us things that may actually reflect what a lot of fans are feeling as well um so once you have the fundamentals down now you have to think about again going back to the basketball analogy how are you going to differentiate yourself as a team to set yourself apart and win right are you going to pick a certain offensive scheme or a certain defensive scheme that's unique Um, and i think that's where the science really comes in so similarly in product development you need to evaluate what are the most compelling and distinct and differentiated features that you can build that are going to set you apart from your competitors as well? Um, and there's a lot of different frameworks that you can use. Um, there's one called RICE, for example, that's very popular where you uh, RICE stands for reach, impact, confidence, and effort, right? So when you're putting together a, a feature or you're prioritizing a feature, 
you assess its reach, how many fans is it is it going to reach or its impact, right? Uh, how much is it going to drive the business? It could be driving subscriber growth or some of those engagement metrics that we talked about earlier, those retention metrics. The confidence level that you have, right? Are you 50% confident? Are you 90% confident? Um, this is where the art, art of it comes in as well, right? And so you, you sort of use that to multiply those these three things together, but it's not just about reach impact and your confidence. It's also about how expensive is it going to be to build that thing? How much effort is it going to be? So you divide that by effort um, and that effort is engineering effort. So something that's really cool might take a lot of engineering effort, right? Um, similarly, something that's really, really going to deliver a lot of value might be easy to build. So those are the low hanging fruit that you want to prioritize quickly on your roadmap. Um, so those frameworks just give you a sense of, of, uh, how to compare features that are similar. And there's other frameworks that are out there, but what's universal in all of them is that they really require you as a product manager to have a great understanding of customer sentiment, customer needs, fan needs, right? Whether you're getting that through the app store, you're reviewing your app store sentiment, or if you're doing qualitative research and interviewing fans and, and um, or doing surveys to figure out what they like. We just ran a survey, for example, in, in Australia, actually, of four live games, right? For people who are subscribers have watched live games to see what their favorite, you know, what they find favorable or not in the interactions and the overlays that we have on the live game experience. So all of that is data that we then take that allows us to put some numbers against these, uh, these factors that we can then use to prioritize. On a previous episode of the podcast, I think it was episode 50, we chatted with a bloke called Finn Bradshaw, who's the, the head of digital at the International Cricket Council over in Dubai. And he talked to us about how digital is all about empathy for your audience. And that sounds very consistent with what you're saying. If you understand the needs of the, the fan, then you're going to be able to build great products. And it sounds like for you, just being a massive basketball fan, and for these other executives being massive basketball fans, that's the most important thing that's going to lead to high quality products. It, it absolutely is. Um, but you don't necessarily have to be an avid basketball fan to have empathy for one, right? Um, I think actually sometimes being a huge basketball fan yourself can lead to a little bit of implicit bias in what you think are the most important things. And you start getting into a dangerous habit of maybe thinking about features that might satisfy your own personal needs, right? As a fan. And so you're having empathy for yourself. I don't think that's actually the idea, right? Um, so it's about putting on, you know, putting on the jersey of different fans, right? You know, what does it feel like to be a new fan who's just coming into the NBA or just learning about the NBA, maybe through, the lens of popular culture and sneaker culture and lifestyle, right? Uh, and maybe that fan is in Mexico and has recently walked into a 2345 airtime store, which is our merchandising partner in Mexico, right? Like what's their angle when they come into our product experience, right? Or it could be somebody on social um, and who's learning about the all-stars and seeing all these incredible highlights of all these name brand players you know, but how do you then get them to go a little bit deeper into the product experience to discover more? So it really takes putting your own fandom aside for a second and just listening, right? And just reading and listening and, and hearing about what different fans want. 
When we when we caught up previously, you spoke about how you you'd worked on the the World Cup app. I think it was the 2010 South Africa World Cup app and the redesign of the the NFL website or, or app. And on top of that, you've done work with ESPN and now the NBA. Is there a favourite feature across any of those projects or something else you've seen that stands out to you? Oh, there's so many. There's so many features that that I liked. Uh, there's also a lot that were failures. <laughs> There's a lot of things that we tried that didn't work. Um, but you mentioned the World Cup app. So just off the top of my head, I'm thinking about this uh, this feature that we created. So the 2010 World Cup was in South Africa. Um, and it was uh, an app that we built coming off of our launch of the first ESPN app on the App Store. So if people remember the iOS App Store um, on Apple iPhone. It wasn't even called iOS at the time, but the App Store launched in 2009. So we were there with with uh, an app to deliver scores as ESPN. And then we thought naturally, as people were putting a lot of investment into apps, that we should build an app for the World Cup um, to not stream the World Cup necessarily, but just to provide people information uh, about the teams. Um, we had nice colors that represented all the different colors that were there for the South Africa World Cup and represented the ESPN branding of it as well. Um, we had some really nice features where every time you launched the app, it was a different color and a different logo because there were all these different World Cup logos. Um, but the feature that I really liked was this map that we put together um, that showed where all the different games were being played across the country of South Africa, which is a huge country, right? And there's the cities were all over the place and many journalists and fans just didn't know where all of these cities were. Everyone knew Johannesburg and, and Cape Town, but not a, none of the other cities, right? And we just built that for fans to be able to see where the games were being played. When I had a chance to go down to South Africa for the World Cup, I was fortunate enough to, to visit and what was really cool was to see journalists actually using the maps feature of the app that we had built to figure out where they needed to go next to cover the games or the the, the teams that they were following. So uh, not something that we intended, but very interesting to see nonetheless. Rubes, well, that was uh, awesome. And that concludes part one. I can't believe I'm saying that for the first time. We're doing two-part episode podcasts, but that was massive. You've covered off some some seriously large ground there. Chat us through part one. What are some things that stood out for you? As we mentioned, like Jay is just a, a phenomenal guy. And one of the things that I really found interesting was how the NBA measure the success of their of their apps and their and their different products. And I think that's interesting because when you know you apply that to the context of looking for, for new jobs and trying to share your experience, having metrics to report on becomes extremely important. So I think if you're going to take a leaf out of Jay's book and what they're doing at the NBA, people out there should be working hard to find out what are the metrics that are important to the organizations that you want to work for and the roles that you want to work in. And when you understand that, then you can start to figure them out for some of the experiences that you might be doing at the moment so that you can talk about like-for-like metrics before you actually get into the job interview down the track. So I think metrics are a huge part of Jay's role and should become a huge part of whatever you're doing at the moment for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I um, I picked up just – and I think this is probably a given for people who would think about this role, but just how precise they are and the lengths they go to to make each and every part of their product or their website or whatever it is – Absolutely perfect. 
I think he articulated that really well, you know, how they experiment with different things. You know, he referenced that guy who messaged him on LinkedIn around like your service is great, but the, the stream length was shown for the, the length of the match. Just that feedback was like, oh, great. Like, let's implement that straight away. That's like direct feedback. So I thought that was awesome. But yeah, the lengths they go to are actually crazy. Totally. It's like no wonder that their, their products are reaching millions, mm. if not billions of people, as we referred to. But one of the other things that I really enjoyed about this chat with Jay is the insight that he shared on what the NBA was doing to keep fans engaged from home. He mentioned that 99% of fans will never watch an NBA game or never Mm. attend an NBA game live in their entire life. So it's their job to keep them engaged at home. And I think that's such a hot topic for all of sport at the moment. And I think, you know, if you are looking to get into the industry or progress further, one of the things you've got to be able to do is be able to have intelligent conversations around important points going on in sport at the moment. So I think this is probably a good area to dive into because it's going to come up time and time again and you want to be ready if you get put on the spot in, interview, in an interview to share your opinion on a hot topic such as engagement without fans in, in stadiums. Awesome, mate. Well, stay tuned for next Tuesday. Part two is coming up. It's going to be just as big as part one. We're going to chat about how you can apply product management in everyday life, which is actually quite interesting when, when you when you do listen to this. Also going to have some of Jay's best book recommendations if you're looking to get into product management. And lastly, and probably the biggest one is just around the pathway you can take to get the role in product management in the NBA. So, I think there's some, some huge things to look forward to in part two. So, Next Tuesday, lock it in the calendar. It's going to be absolutely massive. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Hey team, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, please share it with your friends or your classmates who also have to figure out all of this sports career stuff. As you can see, this podcast is practically a masterclass and it's free. And you and your circles deserve to have it. So please share it far and wide. Finally, when you are ready to make sense of tackling jobs in sport, go check out the Sports Grad Method. This is an ebook I wrote based on eight years of trying to get into the sports industry and teaching others how to do it too. All of that is condensed down into a proven process to getting jobs in sport. If you're like me and enjoy things broken out into logical steps, then I think you're going to enjoy it. To get a hold of that, download it from www.sportsgrad.com.au. Thanks again for listening. Chat to you soon.